0: Before we get started today, we wanted to tell everyone about a guest appearance I did on a podcast called Pop Culturally Deprived.
1: The podcast is by friend of the show, Mandy K. Ottaway. Mandy watches or reads cult hits and classics from pop culture for the first time, and then discusses them with a superfan. Matthew Vose is her snarky British best friend and co-host.
0: This past week, I was on the show discussing one of my favorite films, The Graduate. And don't worry... Even though I love this movie, I'm not afraid to call out Ben for being a creepy stalker.
1: (laughs) You can find Mandy and Matthew at eloquentgushing.com or check our show notes for the links. And now on with the show.
0: I'm Anya, aka Strangely Literal.
1: And I'm Alan. And this is Shadows and Shamblers.
0: Please stand as you are able for this week's reading, which comes to us from the Book of Ibis. The more abundant the blessings, the more we forget to pray. Now you may be seated. This week, we watched American Gods, Episode 7, A Prayer for Mad Sweeney. So what did you think?
1: This episode changes everything that we know about Mad Sweeney and makes me want to rewatch the entire series from the beginning just to watch the way that he's doing everything that he's doing, uh, Pablo Schreiber, that is. This is an amazing piece of storytelling. Emily Browning is incredible in the dual roles that she does, and I think this is the best episode of the series to date. What do you think?
0: I totally agree. I know I keep saying this, but this is... The best episode yet. I love the way they took Essie's story and gave it space to breathe and used it as a frame for the episode, as a foil for Laura, and as a vehicle to explore and complicate her relationship with Sweeney. But before we get to that, let's shine a spotlight on this week's creators. Adam Kane is this week's director. He's directed episodes of Pushing Daisies, another Brian Fuller show, and Supergirl, Maria Melnick is a staff writer for American Gods. She wrote this episode and has previously worked on the star show, Black Sails.
1: Let's recap what happened this week. In the morgue of Ibis and Jaquel, Anubis excuses Ibis to write the story he is itching to tell. He writes about young Essie McGowan, who was raised on fairy stories about leprechauns. Essie is determined to have fine things and charms the son of her lord. She is betrayed by another maid and sentenced to transportation to America. On the trip, she seduces the captain, and they are married. In the present, Laura releases Selim from his bargain, steals an ice cream truck, and continues with Sweeney on the journey to her resurrection. In the past, Essie is caught stealing in the marketplace by the judge who sentenced her to transportation. She is sentenced to be hanged, but meets Mad Sweeney in the adjacent cell. She uses the prison warden to become pregnant, and her sentence is again commuted to transportation. In America, she finds work on a farm and continues to honor the fairies. In the present, Laura swerves to avoid a rabbit and crashes the ice cream truck she loses her coin and becomes just a dead body again. In the past, Essie marries a wealthy plantation owner and inherits the land after his death. She grows old and raises her children and grandchildren to honor the fairies, but they do not care. In the present, Matt Sweeney recovers his coin and makes the hard choice of giving it back to Laura. In the past, Sweeney comes for Essie and transports her to death.
0: So I'm curious what you thought about the connection between the two stories in this episode. So we have Essie's journey and her relationship with the leprechauns and the fair folk. And then we have Laura and Sweeney in the present. So I'm curious, like, what connection you saw between the two? And what do you think about the choice to have Emily Browning played both parts as opposed to casting a new actress. And again, like the same old woman who plays both old Essie and Essie's grandmother at the beginning.
1: God, She's so great. I tried to look up who that is and I couldn't find it. They don't list her in the credits, which is a travesty.
0: I can't believe that. She's plays such a pivotal role in the episode that that last scene is amazing.
1: Yeah. I didn't know right away that it was Emily Browning. Like I couldn't tell. Uh, Her performance is so sterling, like her accent is just flawless. And uh, the makeup was great. The costumes, like everything about the like the way it was produced was just so good. You're just completely transported uh, from one story to the other. So the fact that they casted Emily Browning in both roles made me think of the interview that you brought up a couple episodes ago, where They're talking about the prologues and how it's kind of like this loose narrative space where they can do what they want. And we're trying to like get the rules of this right. Ibis is not just... So he's not taking dictation from Sweeney, but I do feel like he's kind of picking something up from Sweeney. He's somehow focused on him in the same way that Anubis knows that there are people who died in town and that they need to get the table cleared off. I feel like Ibis can sense the story of Mad Sweeney through some kind of supernatural means and that for Sweeney himself, Essie is on his mind as he's traveling with Laura. And so the two of them are kind of married in Sweeney's mind and one person to him. And therefore, they show up to Ibis as like one person and that's how he's recording it. Even though there's not like direct evidence for that, I do feel like this is kind of how it works. He needs to tell this story right now. And there's something urgent in Mad Sweeney himself that is kind of reaching out to Ibis in some way. Like This is all kind of buried very deeply, in my opinion, in Mad Sweeney's POV, uh, the entire episode.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. I think when I first watched it, I was a little bit confused by the choice, but I basically... Ended up coming down on exactly what you said that we're seeing it through Sweeney's point of view, and he is sort of seeing echoes of Essie in Laura, and it's helping him build an affection for her that he might not have otherwise. Mm-hmm. And that goes, I think, a long way towards explaining his choice at the end to put the coin back in her and resurrect her, even though he's immediately punished for that. Um, But we'll talk about that later, I think. I want to focus more on Essie and Laura right now. Mm -hmm. I like that they're both, quote-unquote, like, bad people, but kind of in different ways. I mean, I guess they both... Steal things, or Essie steals a lot of things, and Laura has ambition to steal things, even though she didn't end up being able to get away with it.
1: Well, she's so <laughs> straightforward about stealing the ice cream truck. She's like, "I'm going to steal your ice cream truck," <laughs> but the, and that's not the way that Essie does stuff. She's way sneakier.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I think Laura's much more of just kind of a general asshole, not really caring mm-hmm. about how she appears to other people, whereas Essie is much sweeter. And I think it's interesting that by the end, Essie is longing for a sort of like simple happy life to be content with, which is exactly what we were saying Laura could never be happy with.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The way they contrast with each other is so interesting.
0: Yeah. I also think it's funny that they both like rough sex. Um, just sort <laughs> of like a kind of throwaway line that I didn't notice until the second time through when she's talking to Sweeney in the jail cell um, about what she wants. She says, someone kind enough to be by me, but not too kind. <laughs> So going back to what you were saying about Ibis telling the story like very deeply in Sweeney's point of view, how do you think he's getting that information from Sweeney? Like, do all of the gods have some sort of hive mind going on? Or do Sweeney and Ibis like meet up for red Irish ale occasionally? Like,
1: <laughs> <laughs> I love that detail of the red Irish ale. You could, to me, you could tell like that That meant that Sweeney is on his mind, like this story is kind of cooking in the background for him. I think that it has something to do less with any connection between the gods and more of the fact that Ibis is based on the Egyptian god, Jahouti, who is the god of wisdom. And he he like invented writing. And he's also like the go-between for all the other gods. Like Anytime that two gods get together in Egyptian mythology and they're having a problem with each other, Jahouti is the guy who shows up and mediates. And so I feel like he's kind of picking up the wavelengths of the other gods and he's recording them. Because that's his job in Egyptian mythology, is to to record the truth. That's what he does.
0: Okay, cool. So I guess one thing that I wanted to go over was just sort of on a basic level, how how you interpret the plot of the end of the Sweeney-Laura storyline. So the way I saw it, which I think is pretty clearly in the text, if you're paying attention, that... Sweeney paid the rabbit in gold to cause the car wreck. Mm-hmm. And so, is he trying to get his coin back that way? And then, when he gets what he wants, he realizes that that's not actually what he wants and sort of like takes it all back.
1: I didn't catch him paying the rabbit. Um, so, you
0: see, okay, so what happens is first you just see the rabbit on the side of the road. Uh Then he throws the gold out the door.
1: Oh, yeah. The the rabbit
0: comes back like, you know, 10 miles further down the road. So, like, it's clearly not just an ordinary rabbit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like waiting for its moment.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: The way that I interpreted it is clearly Sweeney caused the first accident that killed Laura initially. Mm -hmm. And clearly he wasn't happy about it right? He makes that comment to Laura. He's done things much worse than just running Wednesday's errands. And I interpreted that as him referring to when he killed her the first time. Yeah. Um, And so he clearly felt kind of shitty about that, but did it because it had to be done. So his decision to cause the crash to get his coin back is based on sort of like, just like what he wants and him being frustrated with being on this road trip with her in the moment but then as it happens it reminds him so much of what he did the first time and he's feeling so guilty about it and starting to really recognize how much of Essie he sees in Laura and then he kind of does the do-over and in that way I think sort of Essie's story and Sweeney's story are both stories about doing wrong and figuring out in the end, how to forgive yourself and kind of move on. Like, I think Sweeney probably didn't know Laura the first time when he killed her. She Mm -hmm. was just a job. But now that he's been hanging out with her, and even though he's made it seem like a terrible burden and he's been hating it the whole time, probably because hanging out with dead Laura just reminds him that he killed her. Yep. He's actually started to grow somewhat attached to her and he can't kill her the second time. He has to, like, finally come to terms with the fact that, like, yes, he did it, but by changing his mind the second time and giving her the coin back and finishing the mission to get her resurrected, he's kind of forgiven himself and is now able to, like, move on with his role in the plot of the story.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's I think that's a really good description of his motivation and kind of his arc really from the beginning of the series up until this point, like after he reads that newspaper, and he realizes that Shadow was married to the girl that he killed. Like the way that he treats Shadow, he's so hostile to him because he wants to keep him emotionally at arm's length. You know what I mean? Like, because it reminds him of this guilt. And that's why he's so aggressive with him and why he's like, please beat me up. Like, kick my ass because I feel like a shithead for what I did to you and to your wife. Like, I want to be punished for what happened. Oh my
0: god, I wasn't even making that connection to the first episode. But you're totally right.
1: It changes everything this episode, I think, like yeah. as far as Sweeney goes. But uh, but we got to like stay focused because this like, <laughs> oh, God, it's so good. In, in terms of Essie and Laura with Sweeney, there's all kinds of inversions here that I really appreciate. So the coin, he puts it back in her chest and she comes back to life. And that is immediately contrasted with him coming to Essie as an old woman and you know, saying, take my hand and we're going to go on this journey of death together. And so he kills Essie, but it's not like a malicious murdering the way that he did to Laura the first time. It's the reward for her piety, a lifetime of piety. And it's the whole point, right, of, of what she did. Like he's honoring her religious devotion and he's playing the ultimate role in his religion, That he could possibly play. He's not just this trickster pixie spirit who like, you know, plays a trick on you and then gives you a blessing and just kind of messes with you. He, it's this very graceful, wonderful movement into the afterlife and it's merciful. It's, and it's the same thing with Laura. He doesn't have to give that coin back. He chooses to do it out of grace and mercy. And I think that he wants to be that king that he used to be. And all of this behavior is very unkingly. And he's just constantly feeling humiliated by the actions that he's forced to take to survive. I even feel like killing Laura and getting the coin back, like, yes, that's good for him. But it's also possible that Wednesday knows that she has the coin and has dispatched Sweeney to get rid of Laura because she's not a part of his plan. Because the raven shows up and is like squawking at him. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I'm taking care of it.
0: Ooh, yeah, I like that.
1: So he's got to kill her again for Wednesday, and it just galls him. You know, like, he's like, no more. Like, why am I not my own man? Why am I not the king that I once was? And this is an action that he can take to recover some of his dignity but at the same time like it's a huge sacrifice on his part right like this is everything that he wants is that coin without the coin he can't live either like they they both need it
0: yeah yeah and I I'm just thinking about this now too the new perspective that Sweeney taking Essie off to her death adds to our conversation in episode three about Anubis and Mrs. Fadil Mm-hmm. and Anubis and Laura, and sort of like what determines which god is the one that shepherds you to your death.
1: Yeah, because she was completely faithful to him. And, and then he's the one who takes her to the afterlife. So it's not Anubis who does this for everybody, right? It it does have something to do with your personal faith. Mm-hmm. And then you were also right, we should point this out about the possible conspiracy around her death, right? Like this conclusively proves it. It's not just the ravens flying like he shows up and talks to the ravens like this is clearly a plan that Wednesday is behind. Like you yeah. said, to yeah, to get rid of Laura so that Shadow has nothing to live for and can be co-opted. This is pretty important, you know, in terms of understanding the plot of the entire series up to this point. Even though Wednesday's not in this episode, I feel like his his hand is heavy on the plot. Yeah. So throughout Essie's story, she has a lot of sexual partners. And what do you think about the way that the show used sex in Essie's story?
0: I love the way that the show treats sex in Essie's story. A lot of times they focus on her face in the sex scenes. And so you can really see how she's feeling about the sex. And it's so different every single time, you know, Mm -hmm. I think it would be really easy to tell the story in a way where here's a woman and she's using sex to manipulate men around her and get her way and in a very like one dimensional manipulative way. And I think that's the way that a lot of these stories have kind of traditionally been told. And I think this episode is kind of like taking that stereotype and, and deconstructing it a little bit by... Making it so clear in every situation, like what her motivations are going in and what she's actually getting out of it. So, the first time we see her have sex with the young nobleman in her household, um, Mm -hmm. I think she's genuinely smitten by him. Like, she's not just using him as a way to increase her standing in society. It's not just about ambition. Like, sure, the fact that he's a nobleman and maybe forbidden on some level, like, that makes it a little bit sexier for her, but that's not really what it's about. I think when they're making eyes at each other as she's telling stories, it shows that there's, like, genuine attraction and admiration between the two of them. And again, when she's with the captain, like, sure, she seduces him to try and get out of her transportation, but she is, like, really enthusiastically enjoying the sex that they're having and like sure maybe she doesn't feel a strong connection to him but the sex itself i feel like it's just so joyous and fun in a way where it's like she's not faking all of that
1: yeah she's Um, genuinely happy when she's with the captain she's smiling constantly and she's really pleased when she gets the necklace from the young nobleman
0: yeah and not just because it's valuable but because it is a symbol of his love
1: Right. And that's in she's so clearly hurt when he denies that he gave it to her. It's not just about like, oh, shit, I'm in trouble. It's like, oh, you like you stabbed me in the back in a really unkind, unloving way. Like she had feelings for him.
0: Yeah. And
1: uh, you can tell. Yeah.
0: I'm curious what you thought about the line that Ibis said. It was first time for neither a fact that neither felt worthy of mention for this sensation was new to both. Is that basically saying that neither of them were virgins, but this is the first time that they had been, like, really in love?
1: Yeah, that's how I took it, that, yeah, and who knows, like, what the circumstances of those first sexual encounters, but this was something that they both wanted for the first time, I guess. I know that that line is directly out of the book from this uh, Coming to America story. Oh, okay. So, you know, like, sometimes they'll take stuff out of the book, and then it it will sit awkwardly with whatever's happening. It was confusing. You're like, what? What do you mean exactly, Ibis? Yeah. But but they do like the way that they're kind of pulling at each other's clothes. It doesn't seem like either one is uh, holding anything back. And then What I really like about that scene is that you get them on the floor spooning afterwards and she's kind of like, oh, you're going to you're going to forget me and meet some society lady. And he's like, no, no. And there's like a tenderness, but there's also this kind of manipulation. And it's exactly what you're saying, that those things are kind of inextricably braided throughout the entire story where it's never just love and it's never just manipulation it's it's always tied together
0: except i feel like in the case of the prison warden it clearly is just manipulation because i get her face in that moment she is like this is the worst fucking fuck i've ever had
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah Um,
0: yeah and then the plantation owner in virginia yeah, it's really interesting in the scene where he tries to kiss her and she's like, No, no, how like, dare you take advantage of me like this? A poor maiden uh, or a poor transportee girl. Mm-hmm. You know, like in a sense, it is manipulative because she says that knowing how he's going to respond to it he wasn't necessarily going to marry her but if she makes him choose between not having her and marry her he's going to choose the latter right so in that sense it kind of is manipulative but it actually turns into like the most functional, meaningful relationship that she has in her life.
1: Yeah. And she's so sad when he dies, like she's standing there. I I love the way that Emily Browning plays it, where she's kind of staring at that grave and she seems kind of disbelieving with her own grief. Like, how did this happen to me? Like, you know, I have everything that I want, but now I feel sad. That I lost this man. Yeah, it's and it's the one that gives her her children and grandchildren and her place in America. It gives her like everything that she said she wanted when she was in the prison with Sweeney. There, there is a cost to it with that genuine affection between them.
0: Yeah, I just I love the way that the episode paints a really complicated picture of love and sex and shows that there's like huge spectrum in which sexual and romantic relationships can kind of exist, and that none of them are ever just one thing. And that's all really hard to define.
1: And and then in Laura's story, we get uh, Salim praying, and they're talking about uh, I love God, and she asks him, like, do you love God or are you in love with God? And she's clearly kind of talking about the djinn there, like she knows exactly what he's praying for and about. And I think the jinn is probably the subject of his prayers. And so I thought that was interesting to bring in the idea of loving your God, like this personal loving relationship, because I very much feel like Essie's story is a love story between Mad Sweeney and her on like a higher spiritual plane. It's not about sex. It's about this devotion that she demonstrates through her entire life. She has many sexual partners, which might seem like impious behavior to a traditionally raised Western Christian audience. But the focus of her piety never really wavers in terms of her worship of Mad Sweeney and the Leprechauns. She's always giving him what he needs from her. And so he's there for her when she needs him. Yeah. It made me think of something, uh, an idea from like the 1860s called the Axial Age. Religions kind of took a shift into a more moralistic framework. So the idea is that in more ancient religions which is what the Irish uh faith would be it would be kind of like a pre-christian kind of paradigm where the gods that you worship don't really care about your moral character they only care about you kind of like paying for what you get like it's a, it's all about contracts and deals and it's not about the way that you behave as a person and then there's kind of a shift Called uh, the post axial age, where it matters how you behave. Like, so your intentions are much more important, religiously speaking. And so, this uh, tradition that Essie is plugged into very much doesn't care about her uh, stealing, about her sexual immorality, I think some people would call it. It only cares about her devotion to the god. But I love the way that they characterize it, that it is an important personal relationship to Essie herself, and centrally important to Mad Sweeney, the way that Pablo Schreiber plays it when he's in the cell, and he's kind of sitting down on the ground, listening to her tell her story, the smile that he has on his face. To me, that looks like a man who is in love with her, and who is just enjoying her presence. And when he comes for her at the end, it's like an act of love, So I kind of saw that story as in like a wider context about a personal relationship that was kind of a spiritual romance.
0: Ooh, I really like that. And I hadn't interpreted the jail cell conversation between them that way, but I really like viewing it in that light.
1: Yeah, I'm having a hard time. (laughs) I keep getting choked up because I I think it's so beautiful the way that that part of the story is written. And every time I've watched this episode... I just end it in tears.
0: And I think that's actually a fairly good transition into the last part of this Sweeney Laura relationship that I wanted to talk about, which is what really is the role of luck in this story versus the character's own agency to control their own destiny, I guess. So mm. Ibis says the fair folk are a fickle lot right before Essie gets caught with the necklace. But Mm. in the show, like the visuals, we see her admiring the charm in public while another one of the maids looks on. And so I guess, I don't know, to me, I was wondering to what extent the leprechauns or whatever were actually responsible for her getting caught the first time, as opposed to just either random chance or Essie making bad decisions. And then sort of contrasting that with later on when she gets caught, and it's, I think, more on her the second time, because she's sort of forgotten to keep up her offerings to honor her contract with the leprechauns. Mm-hmm. And then at the very end, she says, you've done me many a good turn. And Sweeney says, good and elf, we're like the wind, it blows both ways. But I guess, Ugh. I you know... <laughs> Like, as beautiful as that is, and as much as I love it, there's something about it that just kind of irks me on some level, because, like, I don't want it to be that simple. I don't want it to be just you pay for good luck, and if you forget, it's bad luck. Mm -hmm. I don't know where you come down on that.
1: I felt like that fed into kind of what I was talking about with the pre and post axial age. I know this is super nerdy. I'm like, I'm trying to put it in terms that are not super boring. So like in the pre axial age, which is what Sweeney originates from, there's no kind of moral compass for the gods either. So you might, you know, pray for your, to have a good harvest And then they fulfill that part of the arrangement. Like you have like a really good harvest of wheat, but right before you go to harvest it, a hailstorm comes and kills all of it because the gods are fickle and they just felt like doing that. And you have to deal with their capri. And it has nothing to do with the fact that like you were in some way a bad person. It just might be that they feel like pissing in your Kool-Aid today. That's just how it goes. And so that's kind of what the leprechauns are. They're mischievous. Sometimes they help you. Sometimes they don't. And you just kind of know that going into it. I felt like when she says to him, you've done me many a good turn. That's her saying thank you for not for not doing the bad things that I know that you could do.
0: One for not fucking up her story too much in the end right because she had a lot of ups and downs a lot of drama but like in the end she had a good life and her final situation in virginia ended up being what she said she wanted just sort of like content in a very simple way
1: Mm -hmm. and it's exactly um what you're talking about with agency too right like when she's in prison she talks about america And uh, she says that when you go there, anyone can be anyone that they want to. She says that she met a Susan, and she's clearly not a Susan. Like, that's not the name she was born to, but she gets to decide who she is. And that's what she wants. She wants agency more than anything. And I think that that's Sweeney's story too, right?
0: Yeah, I guess so. Maybe what I'm coming down on is that I like the role of luck in Essie's story. And I like the resonance between Essie's story and Laura's story. Mm -hmm. But then I feel like I want Laura herself to have more agency and control in the present.
1: You're right, though. She is kind of a, a supporting character in this episode to Sweeney's story.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess maybe you could argue that Essie is exercising agency in the sense that she courts the leprechaun her whole life and she performs the transactions and gives him the offerings and then she ends up getting what she wants. Mm -hmm. So even though it's a meandering path to get there, she does get what she wants by her own actions.
1: Because there's like the scene in the prison where... Sweeney tells her, "Hey, don't don't drink the stuff in the bowl. Eat the bread." And then she takes the bread and puts it on the windowsill for the leprechauns. So that's a choice that she made. Instead of eating the wholesome food, she gave that to the leprechauns. She gave them the best bit. That is her agency.
0: Oh, I definitely agree.
1: And I think at the end, Mad Sweeney is making a choice because he is kind of Wednesday's slave and leaving Laura dead on the road and having that coin back is going to make everything right again with Wednesday and with his luck. And then he can go on to his battle and fulfill his destiny that he foresaw. And he doesn't want any of that. He doesn't want to work for Wednesday. He doesn't want to kill Laura again, and he doesn't want to go to that battle and die. So he exercises his agency and brings her back. He does the thing that he wants to do.
0: Yeah, yeah. This story is just full of... It's storytelling about storytelling, I guess.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. I know that like a lot of people don't like, you know, plays about production or like writers writing books about writers writing books, and stuff like that. But I'm a real sucker for it. And this is part of the reason why like I get so emotional watching this episode where we start in Ibis's POV. And I just love Damore Barnes' performance all the way through, like the way that he talks, you know, in like explanations and his bookishness and uh, in like those twitching fingers. I just love that. And then when he gets into the storytelling, it's, you know, we're going layers deep. This is a show that's telling us a story about a storyteller telling a story about Matt Sweeney's story. There's It's just like stories all the way down.
0: It all starts with storytelling too, right? Like the arguably I think the action for Essie really starts because she's enchanting the young nobleman with her storytelling ability.
1: Oh, that's great. I love that.
0: Yeah, and her ability to tell stories to Sweeney while they're in prison is part of what sort of enchants him and wins him over, even as much as her offerings.
1: If you think about it, it's the same thing when she's in prison with Sweeney. She's telling him the story of what America is.
0: Yeah, and that basically America is one giant story.
1: Where you get to decide what character you are. Mm -hmm. The plantation guy falls in love with her the same way she's telling stories. Yeah. So that's a great observation.
0: One of my favorite things about this episode is the use of anachronistic music. I think uh, yeah. Um, like the music itself is just so exquisitely chosen. but also, I love the way that having this sort of like classic 1950s, 60s American rock and roll, like in a way, it prevents you from ever forgetting that you're being told a story and that we're sort of looking back on it from a modern American perspective.
1: That's a great point.
0: I love the the record player as sort of like the first image of the episode that prepares us for this like very constructed story mm-hmm. and for the anachronistic music that's going to accompany us for the whole journey.
1: Yep. We are always kind of at a remove through the whole thing, aren't we? We're, we're aware of the story that we're being told and not allowed to like completely sink into it. That's a great point. And the music does give it, it's fun too, right? Like when the. Yeah, yeah I, I loved all the musical parts. And Brian Reitzel's score does contain like traditional kind of Celtic style flutes and violin and stuff like that in the scenes where Mad Sweeney is, you know, being his leprechaun self in the past that I found very moving. And, like, heartbreaking, especially in that moment where he comes for Essie. Not only do we get the anachronistic music, but we do get, like, a, a flavor of actual Irish culture and music folded in there, too. Yeah. So, you know, that old world, new world, which is exactly what this show is.
0: Okay, so now for the most important question that I'm going to ask you in this podcast. <laughs> Are Ibis and Anubis lovers?
1: Oh, God, I hope so.
0: I <laughs> uh, Me too. <laughs> I... <laughs> It totally surprised me, but I just loved the subtlety of the storytelling. Like their relationship, you can tell it's like not sexually motivated. They've been together so long that it's not even about that anymore. The way they're able to so accurately pinpoint each other's mood and motivations and then give the other one exactly what they need. It's Mm -hmm. just like, oh, it made my heart ache in the most wonderful way. (laughs)
1: <laughs> they're so sweet together and Ibis is so kind of artistic and bookish and instead of being frustrated with that Anubis seems completely accommodating and kind about it he's like oh I got it I got the phone don't worry about it
0: you focus on your art I'll take care of everything else
1: oh god this is so great <laughs> yep Chris Obi just continues to like charm me
0: and I love too that the show isn't concerned with making it super clear that they're sexually involved. Like, that doesn't matter. What matters mm-hmm. is their emotional connection and relationship. And actually, I kind of like that we don't really know the full extent of their relationship. I think it's wonderful that the show doesn't have to make it about the sex. And, and I almost prefer like leaving it ambiguous so that those of us who uh want to see that can see it and ship it and everyone else can just ignore it.
1: Yeah, it was so well written. And it's it's brief, but it's really powerful. I just wanted to say too that like even though in the same kind of way that even though Salim's presence in this episode is brief, I, I just love him more and more every time that I see him and When Laura tricks Sweeney into saying the house on the rock and then she goes back and tells Salim like, hey, man, this is where you got to go. I just love his reaction so much. (laughs) He points at Mad Sweeney. He's like, you are an unpleasant creature. And then he jumps (laughs) in his car and drives away. It's so great.
0: Although this is like the one thing that bothered me about this episode Salim totally left his prayer rug on the side of the road by the buffalo statue. Like, what's he going to do in a couple hours when it's time to pray
1: again? Oh, no. Really?
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He just, like, you know, he's That's like great. kneeling and praying. And then he like leaps up, points his finger, yells at Sweeney and runs away. And he's definitely not <laughs> carrying his prayer rug in his hand as he hops into the cab and drives away.
1: Oh, I didn't notice that. That's great. I hope that comes back. I hope it's not just a mistake.
0: <laughs> Which is funny because I feel like the show in general is super good with continuity like that. Like, for instance, Sweeney is still wearing his handcuffs from like two episodes ago.
1: Yeah, I love that.
0: Or maybe just one episode ago. I don't know.
1: And uh, yeah, the even the scabs on his face are still consistent with the beer bottle blowing up. So yeah, they're super good about continuity. Hopefully... Yeah, he needs his prayer rug and he doesn't have it. That would be great.
0: (laughs) Yeah. A couple of other really great Laura Sweeney moments that I wanted to point out. When they're sort of storming away from Sweeney's piss break at the edge of the woods... Oh my mm. god, the size difference between Emily Browning and Pablo Schreiber. I don't know like, if they're using some sort of like cinema voodoo magic to make them look like more of the same size in the rest of their scenes together, but he's like a foot and a half taller than her. Is he's a giant. <laughs> kind of amazing. And then I loved their interaction with the ice cream truck driver who asked Laura to punch him instead of Sweeney, and Sweeney's like, no, 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 you want me to do it. <laughs>
1: That moment's so good. because You're like, you do not understand what you're asking for, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> it's... Yeah, those are great. I love the casual way that she flips the truck over after she comes back. She just kind of one arms it and kind of gives it a heave. And she's like, come on, get up. Let's go. Yeah. Like, it's no big yeah. deal.
0: She's just ready to move on and like get to the end of her journey. She's completely oblivious to the like emotional train wreck that Sweeney has just gone through in addition to the yeah. the physical car crash. He needs like a minute for his brain and his heart to catch up with each other and figure out what the fuck is going on. And she's like, no. Right. I'm like gonna move on. <laughs> <laughs> right. The final thing that I wanted to mention is just that I think it's interesting the way that the show has Essie end up on a plantation. And there's clearly slaves there in the background doing all of the labor for the tobacco. And the show's Mm. not really making that big of a deal out of it in this episode because it's Essie's story. But given the context of everything that's come before it, the prologue to episode two, where we have Mr. Nancy doing his amazing rant and how Shadow is just constantly being antagonized because of his race, that it made me uncomfortable a little bit as I was watching it. And I think you should be uncomfortable. It kind of shows that, like, if you're going to have a story about America that takes place during that time period, like, you can't remove slavery from that conversation. It's always going on in the background. Like, yeah essie had a great life but it was built on the backs of the nameless black people who were toiling in the fields
1: we get that wide shot kind of a crane shot and it's just filled with black slaves who are uh doing all the work as she goes through and like her giant bustle dress was uh yeah it was it was really uncomfortable yeah um Yeah, I appreciated that scene a lot. I'm glad that it's in there to give context. And maybe we'll come back to it at some point. That would be kind of cool if they did like a lost style. Like, you know, maybe we get to see one of those slaves with a Mr. Nancy kind of situation. And we see Emily Browning in that dress walking past or something like that in the future. That might be too much to hope for. I wanted to bring up the relationship between the book and uh, this episode real quick and give some like insider background knowledge on what was going on in the book and where all this came from. So in the author's notes to American Gods, Neil Gaiman talks about um, he was living in America as a citizen when he wrote the book and he had a young son at the time who was in public school. And he had, you know, been teaching his son history and, you know, and he told him that America was not simply colonized by the pilgrims, but that, it, you know, it was kind of a dumping ground for criminals and stuff like that. Uh, much like Essie's story of transportation. His son went to school and then he came home And he told Neil Gaiman, he said, Well, my teacher says you're a liar. Oh my God. Transportation, isn't that crazy? And said, Transportation never happened, there were no criminals who were shipped off to America. It was just the pilgrims looking for religious freedom, and the country is all about freedom and about religion and, and all of this kind of stuff. And it, it incensed Neil Gaiman. He was so angry about it. And it was part of the motivation for writing American Gods, and it was the primary motivation for Essie's story, which is pretty cool, I think.
0: Yeah, that's awesome.
1: The, I know that the reason that I know about transportation, you know, as a criminal sentence is because of this book and this story. So, I mean, he completely succeeded in that goal. And it's a really moving story uh, that's, you know, emotionally and intellectually complicated. I think it's the best of the coming of America stories. This episode was like the best episode so far.
0: Yeah, I definitely think so, too. And I think, you know, there's a reason why they chose this coming to America story to expand basically into its whole own episode.
1: Because it's... It's so powerful.
0: Okay, so I think now it's time to highlight one way that the show surpassed the book and to give up completely on the notion that we can meaningfully talk about how the show failed to live up to the book. So just any (laughs) general disappointment.
1: (laughs) Uh, I'm really disappointed that this episode is not four or five hours longer because it's so fantastic and wonderful. I am sad going forward that Salim is not on the road trip because I just love that guy and he was getting better and better. But I'm glad that he wasn't there for the car crash. I feel like Salim would not have walked out of that one.
0: Oh, yeah, definitely not. For me, I'm just disappointed that Salim left his prayer rug at the buffalo statue. I think like <laughs> he's going to be really sad when the next time he tries to pray and the rocks are digging into his knees.
1: <laughs> Poor uh-huh. Salim.
0: So uh, what was your biggest improvement?
1: Uh, I just really appreciate the balance that was struck in this story by the writers and how, at least in my opinion, they seem to understand how ancient pagan, quote unquote, faiths worked, that it's transactional, but it's not moral. That is so rare in modern depictions of pagan religions of the pre-axial religions. It's all about like, kind of like Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom, where it's like this brutal, you know, savage kind of religion. That's usually how it's depicted or like amoral or just arbitrary. And this was just so beautiful in how personal it was, but also how it's not about traditional morality. And uh, it really like painted a wonderful picture of how ancient faith actually worked in the lives of the common people who practiced that faith, which really meant a lot to me. How about you?
0: I really liked the the subtlety and the care given to the relationship between Ibis and Anubis. I'm pretty sure Brian Fuller put that gay subtext there on purpose, and I love it, I ship it. <laughs> I guess I'm not done with the book, so I can't say for sure that it's not in the book, but at the very least, it's not in the book- up until this point in the narrative and so I like that they moved it up earlier into the story great Um, so that wraps us up for this episode I'm Anya and you can follow me on twitter at strangely literal that's strangely then l-i-t-e-r-l
1: I'm Alan and you can follow me on twitter at chipperallen you can follow the show on twitter at shadowshambler and visit our website at ShadowsAndShamblers.com for news and episode reviews.
0: If you'd like to leave us feedback, if you want to tell us whether you love God or are in love with God, you can visit ShadowsAndShamblers.com contact or send an email to contact at hallowedgroundmedia.com. Join us next week for episode 8, Come to Jesus, which is the last episode of season 1. And join us on Sunday night for the live tweet using the hashtag Shamblers. Don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes. It's the best way for us to find new listeners. And the more listeners we have, the more we can get fabulous guests to interview, like Episode 3 editor Amy Duddleston.
1: Because we looked into the fire, and we saw our death, and we put on our boots and flew, we owe a battle. and is released under a creative commons non-commercial share alike license